Global Governance Futures is brought to you from the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. How does the world hang together? What has gone wrong? And what has global governance got to do with it? To learn more, please visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. Professor David Kennedy will need no introduction to our audience in the fields of international law and global governance. Described by prominent historian Samuel Moyne as the single most important innovator in international legal thought of the past several decades, David is renowned for his iconoclastic, penetrating, and not always welcome critique of the role of international law and the legal college in global affairs. As intimated in his 2016 book title, Struggle is the name of the game, with international law often serving as a sophisticated camouflage to advantage those who already have power against those who do not. For David, we have a big project and indeed a responsibility to try and understand how many of the world's ills, from racism to war, environmental destruction to economic inequality, far from being the work of a few bad actors in an otherwise benign world, are often the result of a legal machinery tasked with reproducing inequalities and hierarchies of influence and wealth and knowledge. So if you wanted to spoil the environment and contribute to climate disaster, law is your friend. Those people are exercising rights and entitlements. So the global warming is a legal institution. And and it's very striking. If you pick up a book on international environmental law, it's all about protecting the environment. Isn't that odd? There's nothing in there about how the environmental despoilers do it. Professor David Kennedy is the Manley O. Hudson Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Institute for Global Law and Policy at Harvard Law School. We were lucky enough to catch him on the eve of the publication of his most recent book titled Of Law and the World a searching dialogue between himself and close associate Professor Marty Koskanimi. Details can be found in the show notes. We spoke with him in June 2023. So, yeah, it's been a real pleasure, David, to refresh, read your work. Uh, and and I think, you know, what really comes through, particularly sort of reading the, the arc of your, your books over time, is that often you're kind of recounting a journey. And, I mean, you are, you know, you're very highly regarded, not only in international law, but also in international relations, in political history. I think Samuel Moyne referred to your work as exhilarating. I know Michael Barnett and Stephen Hopgood in my own field are, um, have, have often spoke highly of, of your of your influence. But of course, you know it, it, you've arrived here from somewhere, and I thought perhaps to begin, it would be very interesting to just get a sense of your own evolution as a critical legal scholar. I mean, your book Rights of Spring in two thousand and nine speaks about your very early experience in human rights in in Montevideo and in Uruguay in the 1980s. And it's kind of a, it's a sort of self-analytical, very personal account of your journey uh, as we might say from a sort of idealistic human rights uh, actor to a more jaded observer of that movement of human rights as a practice, which perhaps has lost its way, become more instrumental, more engaged with strategic interests. And we can roll all the way through to your more recent work uh, I think your 
the the, the book two thousand the four, 2004 book the dark sides of virtue opens with you uh, in a controlled crash landing onto the deck of the USS Independence aircraft carrier out in the Persian Gulf at the height of the the US multipolar moment in 1998 uh, and indeed you know fast forward to post 2008 your more recent work has engaged with questions of economic inequality, uh, the role of experts within the global economy. And perhaps in more recent work, you also have adopted a kind of a, a more disinterested observer position vis-a-vis -vis the material material and the actors that you're working with. So I was just wondering if you could give us perhaps some reflection on how you see your journey over, over these decades, over these distinct, but I think also related pieces of work. Well, first, let me just thank you for um, engaging so seriously with um, what's been a long journey for me. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I think you hit a lot of the main points that I would myself reflect on looking back. I mean, I think I, I started as a, kind of like a lot of people as a typical progressive student of my time and place. So that was the United States in the 1970s. The Vietnam War was going on. The new international economic order was seeming promising, but maybe not. It was unclear what would happen with that. It was a very unsettled decade. I was interested in international affairs, and I thought, well, international law, that's got the right name. Maybe I'll be interested in that. Um, and I guess my first question was, well, was international law a good thing or a bad thing from the perspective of all those things that were going on in the world? Um, and so that was the first uh, project that I undertook to take what held itself out as the promising field for addressing those problems and try to figure out, well, would it be able to do that or not? And I very quickly kind of lost interest in it. So, um, so international law, properly so-called, if you could say that, is a very narrow kind of fantasy world. And um, the tools that it was offering for dealing with things like inequality, the injustice and development that goes on in the third world that I was very worried about in the 70s and 80s and still am um, and so forth seemed very weak uh, and very mal-suited. And so I thought, how do I explain that? How do I explain that the one thing that seems to be promising is not as promising as it, as it appears? And then you get to the 90s and there's this explosion of legalities and I think continued fantasies about the order uh, that could be provided by, by legal arrangements. So a network of networks and we get to global governance, I mean, kind of an explosion of legalities and fantasies. So what about all those things? Uh, uh, how do they relate to injustice? And, and there it seemed the most promising piece of the puzzle was human rights, which was coming into its own in those periods. It seemed the most progressive thing. Students that I was teaching who had the same sensibilities that I had had in the 70s, by the 90s, they were all wanting to do human rights. So, well, was that a good thing or a bad thing? What were its possible upsides and downsides and so forth? So I think as a critical person, you follow what's seeming to be the promises on offer and try to figure out whether they work or not. Uh, and what I was discovering is that all of these fields presented themselves as ordered when the world seemed very disordered. 
presented the situation as a horizontal one, all those equal states, the flags of the UN and so on, the trade system as a bunch of bargain for exchanges between states or between players, um, when actually the thing that was most salient to me was hierarchy. That things weren't like this, they were like that. And so how do you explain that? What is the legal structure of the hierarchy? And how come it's not noticed by all the people who are thinking, well, actually, it's like this, and we have a few problems that human rights can adjust. Um, and then there's war. So all of a sudden, my country is at war again for 20 years uh, after 9-11. Uh, and I brought to that the idea, well, is violence also a legal institution? So if poverty is a legal institution and injustice is a legal institution, it's not just a problem to be solved by law. Maybe war is also a legal institution. Uh, and we want to figure out where is law in that mix and where is the law that purports to address that in that mix? So is there a way in which international humanitarian law uh, and the law controlling activities on the battlefield, which is often national law, um, and that's what took me out to the aircraft carrier to try to figure out you know, what, on the ground, how does this really work? What is the law doing? And, um, you know, I was struck by things like the guy that Human Rights Watch hired to assess the targeting in the Gulf War you, before he did that, he did the same exact job for the Pentagon. So there was an overlap between the vocabularies that were used to wage war and to limit it. And I thought, okay, that needs some thought, right? So how do those things relate to each other? Um, I don't know, how am I doing in my journey? I mean, I guess what happened next? So you said expertise. I mean, I think by then I had gone through- so David, just let me- Just let me- up if you want, yeah. Yeah, just let me pick you up on something you said, because, I, I, you know, it's, it really comes through in your work. Indeed, I mean, your work is often sort of praised for its very kind of uh, supple prose, if you will, but also the very high level of complexity, the ideas that you're conveying. And certainly I've been struck- uh, I'm, I've been sort of thunderstruck a few times reading your work by the sheer sort of clarity of the insight and its expression. So, I mean, it, it's bracing sometimes to, to read, for example, that poverty is a legal institution or that Guantanamo Bay uh, or the laws of war, the, the killing of human beings on the battlefield, that these are not legal black holes, but are actually some of the most regulated spaces on the planet. So I was curious to ask, actually, you know, when you're when you're formulating and and clarifying these insights, I mean, what is the substantive and pedagogical intention behind those kinds of thunderclap moments? Uh, well, that's great if they're thunderclap moments. If you can, I think at the beginning my writing was very obscure, and I had a hard time finding those moments. It took work and teaching to realize how can I break this down? And I think every young scholar faces that. What it, how do I become someone who can speak clearly about complicated things? It's a very difficult thing to do and I haven't myself always succeeded by any means. Um, but I think the, the goal there is to reorient the way people are thinking about it. 
So, for example, what I just said, if you thought it was like this, it's really like that. What would it mean to start thinking about international law if you started with hierarchy rather than starting with equality and just worked out from there? You'd have a very different picture. And now exactly how it would be different and all the details of it don't really matter so much as just to notice that you're thinking of hierarchy as something that's random and problematic and exceptional. And equality is something that's normal. Whereas actually, if you look out at the world, the opposite. So how do I bring that in? And similarly, I mean, there was a lot of discussion around the um, Iraq war and the Afghanistan war about legal black holes, Montanamo's of legal black holes. Well, I thought that was just preposterous. And the thing is incredibly real. So, so the idea that war is like in the movies when, you know, I don't know if you've watched these movies about the Vikings or whatever, and then they all go, let's battle, and they'll go running at each other, and they go like that, and it's all very dramatic. Um, it makes great and pretty appalling television sometimes, but war is not at all like that. Uh, and we can see that now in the Ukraine conflict. It's highly regulated, highly organized. It's a super bureaucratic, planned, every person who's sending a soldier out there wants to very carefully figure out exactly how much discretion about doing what in order to make the thing effective. So you wouldn't just say to all the Ukrainian soldiers, go for it, guys. Of course you wouldn't. You have strategy, you have organization, you have so do the Russians. And so it's a very complicated project to run a war. Um, and that's true of terrorism too, by the way. So if you're a terrorist, you think very carefully about strategy, tactics, public relations, your own escape routes or not, your internal structure, what will really work as a media sensation and so forth and so on. So um, I, it was important to try to reframe people of good heart's idea about law to say we could start by trying to find out how law was part of the problem, structure the problem. That might help us figure out how law might be able to address it. So I think that it's that reversal of the main way people think about it that I'm aiming to try to get as a starting point. David, some people might push back because of their kind of proclivity, that proclivity you're talking about to order and that sense of stability and say that there's great utility in, in law. There's great you know, possibilities that can come from these structures. How would you push back at that? And, and why do you think we do have this, this obsession with you know, the possibilities that order and law might bring? Well, I, I do too. I would love there to be the possibilities that order and law might bring are great. So uh, it's great when it works. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I started the critical reflections I had on human rights by saying there's no question human rights, the movements, the norms, the activities of many activists, the money that's been spent has had many upsides. So I'm interested in another thing which is, and there, and there are plenty of people singing the praises of the order. I don't think they need me to add to that fire. Um, and I, is the order achieved at a cost of some kind? First of all, is it really order? 
Or do we have an idea about it being ordered that's leading us not to notice some things, that it's not order for everything, uh, that it's not order equally, that it's not an order that we recognize as an order from the domestic orders that we're familiar with, that it's much more violent, that it's much more unequal. So the idea of order is kind of helping us not notice some things. Then, are the tools of order and justice the only things laws offer? Or is it also offering something to the person who wants to muck things up? So if you want to despoil the environment and contribute to climate disaster, law is your friend. Those people are exercising rights and entitlements. They're structuring their organizations, their relationship with states in legal terms. So the global warming is a legal institution. It, and, and, you know, and it's very striking. If you pick up a book on international environmental law, it's all about protecting the environment. Isn't that odd? There's nothing in there about how the environmental despoilers do it, what their legal entitlements are. What happens when you represent, and most lawyers involved in environmental law are on the side of despoiling the environment because they're hired by despoilers. There's nothing about that would help them do a better job at what they're doing. And yet, obviously, what they're doing is a legal thing. So I'm trying to counteract the tendency not to notice that other side of the story. I mean, you've, you've characterized international law as sort of a, a narrow fantasy world. Um, but of course, you're also implying here that uh, there's sort of a dark underbelly to how international law, how legal arrangements operate, and how they can serve to reinforce hierarchies of inequality and influence. But you've also said that we still know remarkably little about how we're actually governed at the global level. And I wonder whether we might connect these two insights. I mean, why is it that our mental models that we draw on in international law, but not only international law, also we could say international relations and other fields as well, why do they seem to make inequality and, and you know, draw focus, struggle, domination in the world system so difficult to see? Well, so let me take those in their different parts to that, right? So, first of all, I think. International law classically defined is very narrow and doesn't have much to say about the legalities that structure the global world. So, and everybody in the whole field sees that immediately. It's not just me. So, private law, national law. And so, if you think about um, what are the legalities that express and exercise power in the world? What are the legalities that distribute wealth, status, and authority that structure violence and its suppression and limitation? If we map those legalities, it's, it's very Jackson Pollock looking what you'd get. You wouldn't get, you know, sovereign triangles getting together in the UN and so forth. That picture would have almost nothing to do with it. Almost all the regulations would come from very few places. So the Brussels effect, the Washington and New York effect, the Basel effect for banks and so forth. Um, the legal arrangements would overwhelmingly be private, not public and so forth. So the, um, 
And for some people, the law would be something they receive. And for other people, law is something they produce. So the, the vulnerability to law and the generation of law would be very unequally distributed. And all those things are occluded by the idea that the situation is one of sovereign states, each with jurisdiction, who get together and have treaties. So that's what I mean by the, there's a kind of fantasy di dimension to that classic picture. Now, everybody in the field understands that's true, and has been saying that for 100 years, and yet the picture survives somewhere. And we take it as a kind of starting point. And so how do we flip that? How could we really understand that the opening gambit are all these other things? Um, and what does it mean that the people involved in doing things themselves share that basic background? So it, it's not only not inaccurate, it lives as an actual part of the vocabulary of experts when they're managing things. I'm going to talk about expertise in a second. But so, so that takes me to this question of global governance that, that you mentioned, which is um, it's not global and it's not governance in any way that we would recognize. So it's nobody's job to look out for the global public interest. It's simply not anybody's job description. Uh, and partly we know that there's no sovereign, there's no dad, there's no God. So we're all here in this fallen situation. And the situation is one of contending assertions that my thing is really the thing uh, in a very, very plural world. Um, so if we think about it from that point of view, the traditional picture seems like it's really getting in the way. But that doesn't mean law is not very important. All those legalities are super important. It's just that we have a very hard time seeing the ones that are structuring the things we don't like. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, obviously this podcast is called Global Governance Futures. And I would like to pick you up on the terminology, actually, because a lot of, a lot of colleagues are quite reticent to use the language of global governance. They prefer the perhaps more s solid conceptual foundations of interstate or international organization or international formal law. You don't have that reticence. I mean, global governance does feature prominently in your accounts of law or in your accounts of global economy. Now, that said, you often do preface uh, the phrase with the noun, you know, the, the mystery of global governance. So, what is the value? Uh, what is the value of speaking in terms of global governance then if the global does not exist in any real sense and, and it's not really governance? Uh, what, what's the value of using that terminology and what, what also might be the pitfalls? Well, it's better than the alternatives. So if the alternatives are international law and international institutions, it's progress to think functionally about governance as the exercise of power and break it up and say, you know, who legislates, who adjudicates, who administers for things that have a global dimension. Um, but you quickly find that it's inadequate to that because of the way in which things we think of as global are really quite local. Mimetic climate change is an example to talk about. 
And I think the fantasy that it's governance is still the fantasy that it somehow is analogous to what we imagine public power doing domestically. But mostly, it's done by private players who have a completely different set of objectives. And it's mostly not done in the public interest. It's done in somebody's national interest or somebody's administrative interest or somebody's something interest. So calling it governance is a kind of dressing it up nobly. Uh, but it's also continuing to have the idea that power exercised in the world is primarily public power, rather than being some incredible combination of sovereignty and property and many other different kinds of things. So, so it, I, I'm, I prefer it to the things that supplanted, but it also can get in the way in that sense. I mean, it makes sense to give you an example. So let's take, um, let's say climate change. Why do we call this a global problem? Is calling it a global problem a way of not doing anything about it? Because until we have a global solution, nobody really has to do anything, and all the tools for that are weak, and so forget it. Um, so, first of all, the image of it as a problem puts us in a problem-solving frame. Well, great, governance should solve the problem. Climate change is a problem. Let's try to solve it. Um, and it should be solved globally because, you know, there's that picture of the world and the climate is for the whole world. But all that is just incorrect. So first of all, it will not be solved. It's not a problem. It's a thousand little different things. It's not going to be solved. It's going to be managed, tolerated, struggled with, struggled against, experienced, many other things besides solved. Um, and it's not really global. So a few local players could solve it tomorrow if they wanted to. So a couple countries, a few industries, a couple countries, you wouldn't need anything global. The powers that are despoiling the environment are quite concentrated and could be transformed. It's just there's nobody to do it. So pretending that there's global governance and we don't have a political will, we'd really be able to get those people to do it. There just isn't. That isn't, it just doesn't exist. And so what's really going to happen is a slow effort to try to address things about climate in one place and then another very different thing. Some people are going to try to see the atmosphere and see if that helps, and other people are going to try to move to higher ground, and other people are going to try to get control over resources that they're going to need, and different kind of political tendencies are going to emerge and, and people are going to try to close the borders. And so there are going to be many local, national, private and public responses that are going to be chaotic. Should we call that global governance? It seems really odd. It would be much better to start trying to figure out What's actually happening and what are the legalities that are enabling and are likely to be deployed as that unfolds, rather than saying, well, the real thing that law has to contribute here is the Paris thing, and maybe we'll solve it. It just seems that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, the, the sort of the dialectic between the simple, the complicated and the complex is a kind of motif of the podcast, various conversations we've had, we've had. And of course, the climate space, we have this focus on two degrees, which sort of presents itself as a simple collective action problem 
or at least potentially simple if we could get the political will to galvanize the kind of interstate uh, action required. But of course, as you're suggesting, um, you know, actually climate change is much more complex than uh, a single temperature target. But I think you're also pointing out that there are things that we could do that, you know, the, the, the word these days one hears is, is potty crisis, for example, which uh, I think for a lot of people seems kind of overwhelming and somewhat paralyzing in its complexity, but perhaps things aren't as complex as they might first appear. But I know that um, Tom wants to come in and perhaps this is a relevant segue into the question of expertise. Yes, I, earlier you, you mentioned that we were going to talk about experts, and I'm excited that we are. And I have just a quote from you from um, 2004, I believe, where you said, we're increasingly governed by experts, not by the American empire, not by global capital, but by experts. And, and these experts, quite often lawyers, make decisions that affect the wealth, status, and power of people. And across the globe, experts communicate with one another in common vernaculars. And, and I won't finish the, the quote, but... So your, your contention is that we are governed by experts. And I think my first question would just be, can you explain briefly, perhaps, to the listeners what you mean by that? And then I'll, I'll follow up on uh, another question. Sure. Uh, well, several things. First of all, I was sorry I used experts right after I published that book because it gave the impression that I meant people, only people with very specialized knowledge. Um, you know, doctors, lawyers, dentists, scientists, and people like that. And it is true that there's a technocratic dimension to governance and to public authority and to private authority nowadays. There's a professionalized dimension that is interesting and can be studied. Um, but my image of what of the, the powers of knowledge is broader than that. Um, and so I guess maybe I would rephrase that now to say we're governed by the powers of knowledge in a variety of different ways and by a variety of different people. Um, and so what does that actually mean in practice? Um, well, first of all, it means that many people exercise the powers of knowledge. So, you know, lay people do too, terrorists do too. So they're making assertions, power is, is exercised very often through the assertion that something is true or is the way it is, or that someone is who they say they are, which is, you know, I'm the sovereign, or it's my entitlement, and so forth. Um, and, you know, my grandmother does that when she travels around, doesn't know anything about law, but seems to understand what her entitlements are when she's negotiating with somebody in a shop somewhere. And those things flow around the world in all kinds of ways. So, um, the power of knowledge is exercised more generally than the word expertise suggests, A, B, with more contestation. So when we think about specialized knowledge, we tend to think those people really know. But a really interesting thing that I've been intrigued by for many, many years is that the most sophisticated players in almost every, well, basically every specialized field I've ever gotten into are into agnosticism about what they know, not knowledge. So you go to the very fanciest clinic to deal with your cancer problem, and the doctor will tell you everything they don't know and the mysteries of what's there. You go and talk to a math person, and they'll say, well, when you get into theoretical math, you don't know what the numbers are. You don't have any of this. When you talk to the most sophisticated lawyers, 
they don't know. They say, well, we don't really know what's the rule of law. What does it actually mean? What are these documents? We're going to, we have a lot of stuff we do know, but about the things that are the most important, they're often the most contested. And the vernaculars turn out to be much more double and confusing and contradictory than one might have thought. So, you know, it's not obvious. The scientists didn't know. Well, what about masks? Do they help or not help? How do you balance health and education? Those are all things which there are experts, but their fields are super contested. And the most sophisticated players know that. So studying the role of experts in governance means studying what happens when people inhabit these kind of vocabularies are exercising power in a way where the vocabularies are more open than we might expect, and the people are more varied than we might imagine. And what does that look like? Um, and, and so that's what I was trying to get at uh, in that book, but to, to bring to light the significance of contested ideas in the exercise of power. Um, and to say, you know, let's look at that instead of imagining it's all agents and structures. So if you say there's an agent who has an interest or an ideology or something, and then they're in a structure, capitalism, UN, something. So what can they do constrained by the structure? I wanted to see in that project, I mean, that's a useful way to think about things in a question. But I wanted to see what would happen if we said, well, who the agents are and what the structures are, structures are is something one has to claim. You have to claim this is the structure we're in. It's like the governance structure rather than a national structure. And these are the agents that count. And I am an agent and I'm now acting. That is, those are not facts. They're claims made as knowledge practices. And we could try to study them as such rather than taking those, some of those claims at face value. Now, it might be a lot of those claims are very effective in the world, and it might make sense to take them later as if they were the kind of things we call facts. But in the first instance, they're mobilized as assertions. And so I wanted to talk about exploring the role of that kind of assertive practice in the distribution of power and authority of work. And I think that comes on to the, the question then that we, we had written down. And now that I don't want to use the term experts, given that you've given me a much nicer definition in the exercising the powers of knowledge in a variety of different ways. But to what extent can, can we make the argument or can some people make the argument that these experts, these assertions have been co-opted in the interests of material power? For example, experts are used to uphold a status quo that is unequal or in the service of violent like humanitarian intervention these experts and their assertions of truth that we value because they have specific knowledge are then instrumentalized and alienated from a potentially i don't know um uh non-biased way and just used to justify things that ethically we might have conundrums about well so i mean that's it's very useful kind of political claim to make that the other expert is um, motivated. And it's not your expertise speaking, it's something behind you. Um, 
strategies. You are speaking out of your ideology or out of your interest or out of your paymaster. That is, it's a big part of the contemporary practice of the exercise of knowledge as power, what we might call a hermeneutic of suspicion. So everybody enters into the game primed at a moment's notice to claim that the other person is actually being, as a puppet, being managed by somebody else. And, of course, that might happen. So, you know, you go into a trial and say, the plaintiff and the defendant, and they get their expert and they pay the person, and the person says what they predicted to say. So we know from daily life that that is, a, is not a completely unrealistic way to think about it. But I wanted to put pressure on them by saying that's also a claim that's being made. And if you wanted to find out what's behind the expert, uh, you'd have to have some expertise about that. So the so I'm the expert, and now I have to figure out, well, what is my ideology? What, what is my interest? What, so you need to have some discursive practice to identify what's in the interest of labor or what's in the interest of capital. And those things turn out to be very detested and to be very dubious. So the, the idea of a background power is often presented as clarifying the situation. But I think it rarely actually does clarify the situation. Sometimes it might be very helpful, but um, more often it just takes you to a different discussion about what that's like. And I guess here, I mean, if we could speak theoretically for a second, I'm in the long tradition of social theory that focuses on finding power imminent in the social arrangements and in the discursive practices rather than behind. I mean, even Hans Kelsen said the idea that there's power behind the law is like saying there's a druid in a tree or a, a you know god in a lake or something. It's a it's a it's a projection that people make about power. Power is nothing other than the effective articulation of a claim. So it's a social event that happens when the claim has an effect. It's not something that's behind waiting to be unpacked and discovered. Of course, many things can be done politically with that frame that you're presenting. I don't want to say it isn't useful, but I wanted to analytically put pressure on it for its um, tendency to simplify things rather than to understand uh, that it's just people out there. It's just people with projects contesting with one another. And the idea that there's a, in the background, there's some big interest makes it seem much more hard to dislodge than say, what well, is some other people saying? Some other thing. You can find them and explain how they're mistaken or wrong or should be. I'm deprived of their platform. I think what I'm taking from this, and, and I, understand, I hope I understand what you're saying, is that really we should, and, and maybe this is what you were getting at when you talked about your conversations with experts, ultimately what you find is when you really talk about specialists in their field, they talk about what they don't know. And even in this conversation, we're talking about people that possess some kind of knowledge, but we should also question the way they go about gathering that knowledge, what fields it is that they're gathering their knowledge in, what knowledge production methods are they using? These are things that we should criticize. And maybe I think we get to this idea of like, 
we challenge the epistemics of the experts. So they're experts in a certain field. They've gathered that knowledge in a certain way. But can we challenge the way that they've gathered that knowledge? Should we open ourselves up to potentially other subaltern or indigenous ways of producing knowledge that would engender expertise in a completely different way, perhaps? Sure. And I don't think we have to go all the way to indigeneity to find the alternatives. Almost every tradition has its own heterodox internal traditions that are less viable, less somewhat silenced. So there turn out always, in my experience, to be more ideas lying around out there than are common sense. That or the common sense turns out to be multiple. And you just have to kind of pick away at it and something. But I mean, I think if you if you think about it in this way, the elitism problem of expert knowledge looks different. So first of all, the knowledge is not the knowledge practices that that govern or exercise power um, are much more multiple than just elites. That is, there's a relationship between the, the elites and everybody else uh, that one is in some ways the back formation of the other. Um, much more contested than we normally imagine. Um, and therefore, the idea that the elites are entitled to rule should be weaker. That is, that you know, populism is onto something. The hubris of experts is often a wild overstatement of the, their actual situation. That, that's what, uh, something that happens when somebody tries to exercise power as knowledge. They say, I'm right. And so it's difficult to explain, well, when there's the guy right next to you who has, you're in your same field who thinks it's the opposite. And I just had lunch with you yesterday and you told me that it was all very uncertain. So why are you now saying you're right? So you, you, you have to kind of get in and, you know, take them down a peg and then say, hey, well, within that context, you know, if I have a medical diagnosis, I am going to go talk to the most sophisticated doctor I can find and find out what he does and what he doesn't know. But I, I'm not starting with the proposition that uh, he knows or she knows, and I don't know. I'm starting with the idea he or she is in a community of knowledge practice, needs to be understood and compared, needs to be thought about. Um, probably he thinks a problem is a medical problem, even if it's not really a medical problem, because everybody does that, and so forth. And similarly, the politician thinks everything's a political problem, even though it actually might be an economic problem. And everybody in the business world thinks it's a business problem. So, okay, I have to work with those things that are said and those things that are unsaid by these different people who have authority and power. So with that premise of you know, going out into the world, um, accepting a bit more agnosticism and a bit more uncertainty. What other tools might, you know, the average Joe need um, in a world where experts are now professing agnosticism, which, you know, we've talked about the, the importance of that and the virtues of that. Um, but as we've previously said right at the start, we've been ingrained in the sense that stability and order uh, are essential. And if we throw that out the window, um, you know, what tools can people use to try and be comfortable with that uncertainty and agnosticism? Well, there are, huge, there are lots and lots of traditions from becoming comfortable with agnosticism. Now, every religious tradition that I know anything about has a lot to say about that. 
um, and uh, and pretty much every knowledge tradition, every philosophy tradition has a lot to say about it. You know, mathematics has a lot to say. So there are there are both. Um, you're not starting from scratch if you're interested in thinking in a more critical way about the conditions of our situation. There are lots of heterodox traditions, people who've tried to do this before, that you can learn from. And there are lots of traditions and practices that have to do with getting more comfortable with uncertainty. Uh, and that is not a new idea. And more, more comfortable with the idea of responsible decision than we often are. I mean, so what I mean by that is very often people say, hey, it wasn't me, it was my expertise. I didn't really decide to kill you. The law told me to do it. Uh, I didn't really decide to burn down the forest, but you know, my business judgment and uh, and the entitlements, and I followed the regulations, and you know, let me say, my role did it in the constraints provided by the structure. I mean, I was hardly even there. So that rather than well, no, actually, it's a real person deciding to actually burn down a forest and permit it or engage it or license it, and they. And rather than blaming it on their legal situation or their business practice or their expertise to try to own that, that's there are lots of traditions for trying to do that also as citizens. So, I mean, I would say the first thing to think if one wants to become more critically aware and engaged is that you're not starting from scratch. That's something that people can do with each other by other people with a similar sensibility. And then the next step, step two, go out there and immerse yourself in the reality that you want to unravel. Because you won't be able to unravel it at a distance. You have to hear how they sound, see what the rooms look like, listen very carefully to the way in which they make it all seem sensible, and try not, you know, bring your humanity by suspicion along. But bring your hermeneutic of suspicion of your hermeneutic of suspicion around you because you don't want to just be saying it must be some puppet thing and just keep listening and trying to figure it out. So I would say that's the, you know, I say, what's your critical method? That's my critical method. So, um, okay. And I'm, I'm going to jump back in here and, and maybe take this back to, to firmer ground. I think you say that you have to begin. Sorry if we drifted. <laughs> No, no, no. It was, it was good floating. It was very ambient. I enjoyed it. Um, you say that you often begin your teaching with, with a question and, and we've, we've written down here, you know, is, is looking at the current moment, the current geopolitical moment, the current um, state of affairs in, on, on the planet, in international relations, in global governance, you know, is this a 1648 or a 1918 or, or a 1945 or a 1989? You know, is there a historical similarity um, in terms of there's a change in the world. We're moving from a unipolar world into a multipolar world. We have hot war in Europe for the first time in decades. How do you perceive the current moment to be? And does it have historical um, similarities that we can recognize and should learn from? Well, let me start by saying that I, I do use those dates that are important in the history of international law, properly so-called, 1648, as a way of talking about different historical situations, but not about the severity of the problems. 
So or the structure of the, you know, was there a war, wasn't there a war? But rather to talk about something else. So let me say something about that first, and then we can get to your, your question more directly. I use those dates um, because they signify different elite sensibilities about how much be up, might be up for grabs and shape. So we now remember 1648, who knows what really was going on, but we remember it as a time in which it seemed like something very large was up to be rethought. Namely, religion could be domesticated within the European system, within the sovereign system, rather than being a, itself a pattern of global government. So it was a kind of resolution of the problem of the Reformation within Christianity. We remember 1918, at least in Europe, certainly as a time when the shattering of a whole generation and the dramatic collapse of empires across Central and Eastern Europe led people to believe a lot was up for grabs. And it was possible to really go back to basics and try to put the society's back together. Whereas we remember 1945 differently. There'd been this war, been a big deal. But more or less, we were going to put it back together the way it was with some architectural rearrangements. And then in 1989, you know, that was the end of the Cold War. At least we thought it was the end of the Cold War. I don't think the, the Russians thought necessarily it was the end, but we thought it was the end. And so, but we didn't have to change anything. Finally, it was restoration. We could do everything we'd always wanted to do. That was, we were not rethinking the foundations. We were doing what had always been our plan. Okay, those are different generational moments. And so I want to try to ask people now, how much do you think is up for grabs? And people often have a very, in my experience, young folks and students that I encounter have a, a double sense. On the one hand, they feel like a lot of things should be up for grabs because of all the problems that you just mentioned, but nothing is actually up for grabs. And so, therefore, what should they do? Well, they should get a career so they can live in a suburb, you know, high above sea level is what they should do. Because what are you going to do if the situation looks very perplexing, but nothing is actually up for grabs in any of the institutions or structures that are, that are around and available? Uh, and so I've been trying to counteract that. And first of all, by being on the lookout for people who might think it's a 1648 kind of moment and might be interested in trying to, to rethink what the foundations are, even if it's not immediately realistic, how that would be implemented. And secondly, trying to figure out what are the conditions that make everything seem so stuck, given that it seems like it ought to be to the so what is it and some of the things are those we've already talked about the idea that we imagine law to be a solution rather than part of the problem means we're not seeing how things are stuck we're not seeing that the stuckness is a result of human agency and arrangements and real people the projects doing the things to keep it stuck and so we can't figure out where it could be contested and where you put the shovel because we're imagining to put the shovel in, you got to go to Paris and kind of we know that's a hopeless thing for global movements. So, so I think that the task that I've been interested in is how to move people towards imagining that 
deeper questions could be asked and that it would be possible at least to do the, the kind of grunt work intellectually of figuring out what it would mean to identify what the foundations are and then imagine how they might be changed. And you know, that does happen, right? We, we don't realize how recent it is, for example, that the domain of property and the domain of sovereignty were understood to be different rather than very similar. And, you know, property is a kind of sovereignty. Sovereignty is a kind of property. It was only 120 years ago that that was common sense. So the, you know, the, the idea that politics and economics have a different spaces, politics is territorial and economics is global. That's a relatively recent institutional setup. The idea that everybody's a state, a completely crazy idea that the only way to be political is to have a state. You know, you need a bird and a museum and a territory and a map and a flag and so forth. That's a, that was a, like a nutcase idea that arose at a particular moment in Europe and then got translated in very different forms around the world. So, you know, a thing that might have seemed organic in Denmark um, is completely artificial in Nigeria. And has a completely different meaning in the settler colonial states and so on. But we're imagining that that is the form that politics happens in. So that's very recent. And so it's within the lifetime, you know, of my grandfather that that all got going. It's within my lifetime that there was decolonization. So I think that we forget how much innovation and change there's been in recent history. And that's another reason why I think we have such a hard time imagining what a 1648 moment could look like. So, I mean, what, one of the ways that I teach both my course on economic development and my course on, on the legalities of global affairs is by focusing on moments of radical change that were happened already. And so it could happen again. Yeah, and of course, you know, we inherit these epistemics or these uh, systems of knowledge from earlier eras and the 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 cunian paradigm shift happens slowly and i think you know sometimes 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 slowly sometimes all at once yeah okay yeah i mean but in terms of framing the problem sometimes i do wonder whether the times are potentially even more dramatic than a, than sort of a 1648 moment i mean we sometimes hear this refrain that there's nothing new under the sun but i mean nuclear weapons ecological collapse synthetic biology i mean these are these are risks that have global consequences that are systemic potentially even biopolitical and yet we tend to still think very much in sub systemic terms which i suppose is perhaps also the, the aspiration of global governance to try and open up a conversation about the possibilities of a post westphalian political reality, for example. Well, so first of all, I think everybody always thinks their moment is very exceptional. So I, having lived some years, I'm skeptical in general of those kinds of claims. I think that, so the, um, what is the function now of the literature about the Anthropocene, about um, climate crisis, inequality crisis, and so on and so forth. The, 
the constant invocation of the drama of the threat is obviously something people do to try to get people to do something uh, that they wouldn't otherwise do if they weren't constantly being reminded of the drama. Um, and the fragility of the situation. It's very fragile because, you know, inequality, we might tip over the apple cart. If we get too much inequality, they might, they, the other people, might overthrow us. So, that, so there's a question about the sustainability that makes people feel a little nervous about, you know, investing a lot in the stock. So the, it, I think that my own thought about that has always been, first of all, things are much more sustainable than they seem. The problem is that they're too sustainable, not that they're not sustainable enough. They're very difficult to change. And you describe those problems as systemic. But I'm not sure that that's the right way to think about them as general problems that are systemic. They're, first of all, is there a system for which they could be systemic? Or is the situation much more you know, conflicted about what the system really is and, and what it really looks like? So in that image, we understand when you say the problem is systemic, we immediately have a whole idea about the system. Uh, it's a big system, you know, the capitalist system, the state system, the international system, ugh, and it's systemic. Um, but I want to try to pick away at that and say it's actually more diverse, it's more contested, and therefore there are a lot of more vulnerabilities than you might imagine. And the people claiming it's a system are, in part, are part of the problem. Um, because it's their system that they're claiming it is. So, you know, I mean, and so I, I guess the... I guess I just come with skepticism about all this. So, and you know, the Anthropocene in the literature, the people to interpret that really different ways, right? Part of the Anthropocene idea is, well, humans have managed to control the climate. Let's go for it, man. Let's really control it. And other people have said, no, the Anthropocene is going to end and the whole planet will be destroyed. But actually, the planet will be fine. It's very unlikely. People said this about nuclear war, too, that the planet would be destroyed. But actually, the planet would not be destroyed. Um, and mankind wouldn't be wiped out either. Those were always wild exaggerations of the actual way things would unfold, which would be much more diverse in their impact that would empower some people as it disempowered others, often accidentally. And so... I think we're, we're, our attention is taken away from actually figuring out where the possibilities for action and the vulnerabilities to power are when you think about things in that way. And I just, I just discourage it. I mean, if it helps people get animated to do something about something, sure. But it's other than as a kind of hortatory sermon, I don't find it a very intellectually useful way to frame the matter. Yeah, no, I think that's a very useful sort of reframing uh, and a good provocation. Uh, you know, it, it 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 does seem as if that sort of the imaginary of crisis is all around us at the moment, and you know, the actual socio psychological effects of that may not be actually so welcome. Um, but I think the other aspect of this conversation, which uh, is important to 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 acknowledge, is that it does seem like it's a time now for thinking in perhaps more macro terms. Uh, so, you know, I wonder to what extent the situation we find ourselves in uh, is uh, provides an opening for, um, well, 
critical reflection on where we find ourselves. I mean, to offer a little anecdote, I can remember hosting you uh, for a workshop in London in 2015 and uh, a prominent uh, colleague in international relations uh, opened his remarks by saying, when I was a young scholar, I dreamed of being a David Kennedy. (laughs) (laughs) And he seemed to imply that, you know, while the critical impulse is admirable, given the hard realities of real politique, of institutional bureaucracy and so on, you know, ultimately many of us have had to adopt a more pragmatic, perhaps a more narrow, specialised lens onto the world. And I mean, apart from perhaps being curious to ask how you received that kind of reaction from colleagues, uh, I think the, the broader question would be, you know, what is the role of critical scholarship today? Uh, and what what would you say to those who might um, push back against critical scholarship as sort of being uh, impractical or you know leading us into despair? Those sorts of objections that one sometimes hears. Well, they shouldn't do it. They think that. So, so I mean, um, I think the animus for critique is a very um, personal issue. So one doesn't decide to engage in critical reflection um, or critical intellectual reflection as a choice among, you know, many different methods. Maybe I'll be a positivist. Maybe I'll be a critical reflector. I don't know if it depends. Um, One comes to thinking critically about matters because one feels kind of adverse to the arrangements, skeptical of the certainties, um, puzzled by the common sense that's all around one, and one feels it's urgent to try to find out how and why. That is, one wants to try to get to the bottom of what one really cares about and figure out how it's generated in some way. Um, Now, there are other people who have a really different internal makeup in which they want to do something in real institutions in real political or social time about something. And they are not interested in critical reflection. You know, fine. So I I, I don't, I see that as a different kind of life. And there are people that want to be economic um, captains of industry and environmental despoilers too. So now I want to try to figure out whether what they're doing is part of the problem or not. So there are all those people being pragmatic out there. I mean, there are t- sort of two kinds of people make this critique of critical scholarship. One, they say you've lost your ethical moorings. You're criticizing human rights and you're not being ethical. Or you've lost your pragmatic moorings. You're just like speculating about things that can never happen and are sort of throwing up your hands about the real situation we're in front of and the crisis that's immediate. And um, what I want to say is that the, what they think of as pragmatism and what they think of as ethics might be thought about. So, and then one would ask, what is the relationship between the exercise of power as an affirmation of an ethical position, speaking truth to power, and the exercise of power as the foregoing of ethics for pragmatism? Because in the contemporary practices of governance, you find both wed together, even in places where you'd expect to find only one. So if you thought in the 
law of war, you'd find only the pragmatic, or in human rights, you'd find only the ethical. It's not like that. The practice of power exercise through knowledge, or let's call it governance, because that's the title of the, of the uh, podcast, um, is a blend of that kind of ethical claim and that kind of pragmatic claim often in different dimensions or institutional arrangements. So, you know, you're pragmatic in the field and ethical with donors or whatever. And so that, I don't, I just take that as a person exercising power and self-justification that is really useful to listen to and to try to understand, are they contributing to the problems in the world or are they contributing to the solution? And probably both. And in what kind of, ways and that so my task then is to try to hear them and analyze them so as one colleague said to me you study me and i study the world and my response is you are the world so there's no actual world out there that's not composed of people like you who are saying things like that to me so I, I can't resist asking, David, uh, you know, given that reflection, obviously you are at Harvard, uh, which is very much kind of the, the citadel of uh, epistemic knowledge power. Uh, I mean, how how do you understand your own own role then? I mean, how has your, you know, your research informed perhaps your own self-analysis as, as a participant in these governance systems of power, um, not, not just a critic? but also being a participant. Well, I've certainly trained more people to harm the world than to help. For sure. I mean, one has to understand one's situation uh, in some way. So, um, and, and so, you know, one pursues a variety of different activities and tries to figure out what's possible. I, I will say that the, uh, Opportunities afforded to me by being at a place like Harvard have been remarkable um, in terms of, of visibility, but more than anything, in terms of the students that I've encountered and the colleagues that I've uh, been able to um, work with around the world who wouldn't have gotten together and wouldn't have had the capacity to think critically together were it not for being at least initially drawn by the idea of a high status elite institution so so you know harvard puts um golden shoes on you if you know what to do with them uh and that's been that's been really true but that just means everybody needs to actually try to figure out what their situation is and what golden shoes they do have. and everybody that's listening to this podcast will have some otherwise you wouldn't be listening to this podcast uh and so the, it, it's an assessment of one's own capability for usefully engaging in a, in a critical project and endeavor, given where you are, what you know, what you have access to, who you can listen to, how you can understand them, who you can work with. You have one friend, one colleague who you want to do a reading group with and try to really figure out what are the header tools I can use to understand this better. Um, so I think that's, I think that, that the, the reflection that you asked me to do about the situation is one that I, that I would encourage everyone to engage in. Well, I think that's a 
perhaps a good note to, to 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 roll to a close. I mean, certainly that resonates this this idea that we all, in a sense, are within systems and or, or within within a within our own political social realities. That there's no view from nowhere. That we always have a view from somewhere, and in that sense, we all have. Uh, the opportunity to reflect about our ethical responsibility given our circumstance. I mean, I think, you know, just as a last thought, I mean, maybe there is something special about this moment, at least for those of us in the North Atlantic. We hear all this nostalgia for the post-war order and so forth. But what I think that's really about is the feeling of vulnerability the feeling of the challenges of economic development, the realization that the world is a plural one that's always been available everywhere else, coming home to us in the North Atlantic. Um, a return of, of vulnerability to the North Atlantic after a long period in which that could be forgotten and in which hubris could emerge as our major go-to. Um, and I think that's a very promising, on the whole, um, development for critical thought. And I, I think that's a wonderful invitation to, you know, our students and our colleagues and everyone listening to this conversation. So thank you so much, David, for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Lovely talking to you. Thanks for the interest. Thanks for tuning in to Imperfect Utopias or Bust, Global Governance Futures. If you liked this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, other resources, listen to past shows, and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance.